Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Glenda, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, Progress in the Treatment of Hodgkin Lymphoma. And today's one-hour program is scheduled for all of you um, to get information that will help you um, in, in coping with Hodgkin lymphoma. Um, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as many other lymphoma organizations. And I do want to specifically call out the Lymphoma um, Research Foundation and Lymphoma Foundation of America. Um, and there are many other blood cancer organizations on the call as well. Now, we have on the call today over 494 participants on the call. So you come from all over the United States, from all different parts of the United States. Um, and um, we also have international participants today from Canada, India, Ireland, Nepal, Philippines, Singapore, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So really a bit of a global call with everybody on the call from different parts of the world. And today's program is supported by AbbVie and Seattle Genetics. And I really want to thank them for their support of the program, but also for their their collaboration in making today's program possible. However, the most important people on this program today are all of you, but our speakers. We have the best speakers that you can imagine. I'm going to start by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. David Strauss. Dr. Strauss is attending physician, lymphoma service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, professor of clinical medicine, Wild Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Strauss will be addressing an overview of Hodgkin lymphoma, staging and diagnosis, and current standard of care. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Strauss. Thank you, Carolyn. Uh, well, good morning, afternoon, and evening. Uh, I have the task, I guess, of setting the stage for the discussion uh, on some of the basics uh, first, an overview of Hodgkin lymphoma. It is a type of malignant lymphoma, which is a blood cancer that involves white blood cells called lymphocytes that operate the body's immune system. It is a relatively rare, though not very rare, cancer. There may be seven to 8,000 new cases per year in the U.S. as compared to, say, 170,000 or 180,000 non-Hodgkin lymphomas. It is mostly a disease of young people, of children and young adults. Probably if you rank patients according to age on clinical trials for Hodgkin lymphoma, the median age, the middle guy, would be 30 years of age. There is also Hodgkin lymphoma in older adults, and maybe 20% or so are over the age of 60 years, and the course in biology is a little bit different in that group of patients. It is highly curable. It has been a success story in medical oncology with cures in the in 70 to 90% plus percent of patients for the past 40 years. Uh, over that period of time, an emphasis has been on uh, obtaining excellent results while reducing toxicity, particularly late toxicity, 
and also uh, to slightly move the bar better than these already good results. So it's a little bit different from other cancers where the treatments are very unsatisfactory and, you know, there's continuing uh, major effort on trying to improve on the results. Um, the diagnosis of Hodgkin lymphoma and really of mostly, uh, really of all cancers is established by biopsy, that is taking a piece of the tumor or something involved by the tumor and examining it under the microscope. Uh, sometimes fine needle aspirations where only a few cells are pulled into a syringe and smears are made, cytology of the individual cells are adequate for diagnosis, but in the case of lymphomas, we really need a piece of the tumor. Uh, typically, if it's a lymph node, an excision or removal of the lymph node is the preferred way of making the diagnosis because the diagnosis depends not only on the individual cancer cells, but on the uh, on the surrounding cells in the whole uh, tissue matrix of, of the malignancy. Um, we have a staging system for Hodgkin lymphoma that has been used for over 40 years, really deriving from the era where the emphasis of, of uh, treatment was radiation therapy, but we still use it with some modifications. Uh, this staging system divides the body in half by the diaphragm, which is the muscle that divides the chest cavity from the abdominal cavity. There are four stages uh, according to the number of regions involved. Stage one is disease just in one lymph node area. Stage two is disease on two or more uh, lymph node regions either above or below the diaphragm that are not contiguous, for example, nodes under the uh, under the arm and in the neck, or spleen, which is considered to be a lymph node in the staging and groin. Uh, stage three is disease in lymph nodes and or spleen above and below the diaphragm, and stage four is disease in lymph nodes uh, with the addition of what we call an extranodal site, a site that's not a lymph node. In the case of Hodgkin lymphoma, this is generally lung, liver, bone, or bone marrow. So we do, it's important to do staging uh, to find out what areas are involved because the treatments to some extent differ uh, according to what the stage is. And the things that are used, uh, there are certainly routine blood tests. Uh, imaging uh, is really critical and two forms of imaging are used. Computerized tomography or CT scans have been used for 30 to 40 years. This is a type of computer-generated X-ray that can show the size of lymph nodes and uh, spleen or other organs, making cross-sectional X-ray pictures of your body like slices of a salami. This is complemented by a nuclear medicine scan called a PET scan, positron emission tomography, which uses a radioactively labeled analog of glucose that is taken up faster in cancer cells and sometimes inflammatory cells than normal cells, this particular analog of glucose 
uh, is not metabolized uh, further in the cells, and glucose is the building block for sugar metabolism in all living cells. So this gets into the cells and is not further broken down. You can do a nuclear medicine scan and see what areas are involved. This is important in staging, but is also one of the important things we use in assessing response and deciding whether or not we need more treatment. Um, so this is kind of uh, a very brief overview of this. I'll now just briefly talk about kind of what are the current standards of care, and I'll divide this really into early stage, which would be stage one and two, advanced stage, which would be stage three and four, and I will say a word about early stage with very large lymph node tumor masses, which we sometimes call bulky disease. So for early stage Hodgkin lymphoma, the breakthrough was really made nearly you know, 50 years ago with the use of radiation therapy, which is, very, which is excellent at getting rid of disease in the areas that are radiated. And techniques were developed, particularly with the use of the linear accelerator, to give adequate doses to be curative to large areas of lymph node groups. Uh, this uh, was really a, a great breakthrough and resulted in cures uh, more than were seen before it was used. In the ensuing decades, uh, chemotherapy, combination chemotherapy was developed, which was also very effective in getting rid of disease really throughout the body and was really started, the use started in advanced stages in stage three and four where it was difficult to give very, very extensive radiation therapy. Now uh, that we have effective chemotherapy, it's been applied to earlier stages, uh, first uh, in combination with radiation therapy to a lesser extent than the radiation therapy that was used as a single treatment, and more recently, uh, it's been shown that you can uh, just treat with chemotherapy without radiation therapy with comparable results, maybe a little bit uh, higher relapse rate than with the combination of chemotherapy and radiation therapy. And this, uh, these uh, newer trials have used PET scanning to assess the completeness of treatment. So if during treatment or at the end of treatment, the PET scan, which was positive, becomes negative, that is a very high predictor of a low likelihood of relapse. So that has been used really as the gold standard now to assess what we call a complete response. So it's been found that if, with chemotherapy only, using this PET scan tool, if you get a negative PET scan, you can usually have a very good result uh, without radiation therapy with, say, three to four cycles of chemotherapy, ABVD being the standard treatment. Um, Radiation therapy uh, is associated with late effects, and extensive radiation, the more extensive the radiation therapy, and particularly the extent of the radiation therapy, to some extent the dose, uh, will increase the risk of late, recur of late uh, complications of treatment that can be fatal. 
including second primary cancers and cardiovascular disease and other complications. So the trend has been to try to limit and eliminate its use when possible. For advanced stage disease, combination chemotherapy was the thing that really uh, resulted in a dramatic increase in cures. The first of these was MOP regimen developed in the 60s and 70s by Dr. DeVita and his group at the National Cancer Institute. Uh, this has now been pretty much replaced by ABVD, adriamycin, bleomycin, vinblastin, and decarbazine, which is the has been the standard chemotherapy used, particularly in North America, uh, and uh, this has been a standard treatment. And then there are more, uh, there is a more aggressive regimen called escalated Biacop, which has been used in Europe, particularly in Germany, where it was developed, which results in higher, lower rates of relapse, but higher toxicity, has not really gained a lot of enthusiasm in, in this country. And just to, as kind of an appetizer for some of the discussion, a, a, a really spectacular new drug, which is a type of chemotherapy called Acedris or Mertuximab Vidotin is, 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 is the generic name, Acedris is the trade name. Uh, this is a new type of chemotherapy, which, which is called an antibody drug conjugate, which consists of uh, a molecule with two parts. Part of it is an antibody that attaches to a receptor on the surface of the Hodgkin lymphoma cells called CD30. And this is connected to a drug called monomethylorostatin E, which is a very powerful drug that given alone would be too toxic to give, but combined with the antibody that hooks onto the tumor cells that can deliver this drug directly to the tumor cells and cause them to die. And in relapse patients, uh, this drug was found to have twice the response rate of any other conventional chemotherapy, so this uh, gained its approval. And recently, a trial that combined uh, Acedris or Brintuximabidotin with three of the drugs in the AVD reg ABVD regimen, AVD, doxorubicin, vinblastin, and decarbazine, with the omission of B, with the replacement of the B bleomycin with brintuximab vidotin, uh, this a, a large randomized trial in 1,200 patients was recently completed, comparing the standard ABVD, which has been used for 40 years roughly, with uh, AVD with uh, AVD plus brintuximab vidotin or acedrist. And this trial uh, was uh, recently published, showed, and it showed a, uh, a s statistically significant, although small, decrease in relapse rate for the new regimen versus ABVD, which was statistically significant, although survival was not affected. So the question now is, when to use this. It is now approved for use in newly diagnosed stage 3 and 4 Hodgkin. When should this be used? Should it be used in all patients? Should it be used in subsets of patients where it seems to be of the most benefit? So I, I don't know if I'm nine minutes, but I think that kind of is my overview of kind of setting the stage for my colleagues.
Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Strauss, and you truly did set the stage. Outstanding, wonderful presentation, and there will be questions for you, I'm sure, during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Thomas Haberman. Dr. Haberman is Professor of Medicine, Mayo Clinic College of Medicine, and Dr. Haberman is going to address targeted and emerging treatments, the role of clinical trials, and how research contributes to your treatment options. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Haberman. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's a privilege to be with you, Dr. Strauss, who, for the audience, has really devoted his career to Hodgkin lymphoma, and, to, and it's an honor to be with Alice, Dr. Allison Rosenthal uh, and S.E. Roman. The first question is how research has improved outcomes, and Dr. Strauss has just articulated this, but to put it back in the context of years, the disease was first described in 1832. In 1902, Dr. Dorothy Reed described the, the cell and kilovoltage radiation therapy came around in the 1930s and the 1940s. Alkylator chemotherapy and vinca alkaloids were introduced, not very effective by today's standards, but a real advance then. Then it was wide-field radiation in the 1950s by Drs. Kaplan and his associates at Stanford that started to change the landscape significantly followed by MOP in 1960s, ABVD in the 70s, auto stem cell transplant in the 80s, CT scans in the 80s, BIACOP in the 1990s, PET scans in the 2000s, and then it was until 2014 that no radiation therapy in limited stage disease, in part by the German Hodgkin Lymphoma Study Group. Then 2015, bentuximab bendotin was approved uh, internationally. Nivolumab was approved in, in our country in 2016 and subsequently in other countries. And then Brentuximab Bendotin uh, was FDA approved on March 20th in the United States of 2018. This is all the result of research. And to develop these drugs, uh, to develop an understanding of how they work, requires a tremendous amount of laboratory research that is really important. Dr. Strauss has articulated uh, targeted and emerging treatments, and I'm just going to build on some of those for a couple of minutes. Uh, the therapeutic interventions at this time are really PET-directed, and that if you have a negative PET scan, post-chemotherapy, and this is also complements of the Hodgkin uh, Disease 15 trial from the German Hodgkin Lymphoma Study Group, you really uh, don't need other therapy. So how did we discover these other drugs, the Brentuximab, Vendotin, and the, and the Nivolumab? The approach that's taken is those patients who relapse, and especially who relapse post-auto stem cell transplant internationally, then become el eligible for different uh, chemotherapy approaches. One of the first drugs, MDX060, which is an anti-CD20 antibody, was really disappointing with an overall response rate of 8%. And a drug came along, Tipifarnib, which was one of the, the first drug of oral agents to come along that had a 21% response rate. Then Everolimus had a 50% response rate. This is not FDA-approved, neither is Tipifarnib. Then Brentuximab Vendotin had a 75% response rate, and then Nivolumab 87%. And it was these trials that then went on to lead to other further data uh, to then provide other options for patients who relapse. The anti-CD20 antibody Brentuximab Bendotin has been uh, uh, reviewed by Dr. Strauss. It's a very potent antimicrotubule agent, and it's the microtubule dysfunction which makes a, a Dorothy Reed Sternberg cell look, look like it looks. And 
of interest the long-term uh, five-year survivor results of those patients who went into complete remission, which is about a third, uh, 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 is very significant, and over half of those still remain in, in, in remission. I think this really demonstrates how important clinical trials are and that this offers a real opportunity uh, for treatment in patients who relapse. What's also changed uh, cancer therapy overall in a very uh, remarkable uh, way uh, is the program DEATH-1 uh, pathway. And essentially, this, pa this pathway dampens the immune responses, and the lymph nodes of Hodgkin patients are composed of lots of T cells and very few Reed-Sternberg cells. And certain cells express the PDL1 and PDL2, which then engage receptors on activated T cells and, indu and induce T cell exhaustion. So when we give these drugs, the uh, uh, nivolumab and pembrolizumab are the two drugs that are FDA approved in our country. Uh, this results uh, in, in rather remarkable responses. And so the first drug we talked about, rentuximab vedotin, targets the malignant cell. What's really fascinating is that these, these two drugs don't target the malignant cell but the surrounding T cells. And uh, a uh, paper in the New England Journal in late 2015 uh, uh, reported uh, just phenomenal results with 87% uh, overall response rates, and pembrolizumab was subsequently reported. And these are the two mainstays of targeted therapy in Hodgkin lymphoma. The exciting thing is that these have occurred just in this last decade, and the hope is we're going to find other solutions in these directions. Rituximab has uh, been used in B-cell lymphomas uh, in almost all of them, essentially. Uh, it's been looked at with ABVD with high response rates, and, and actually the EBV, the Epstein-Barr virus, which is associated, that copy number uh, dropped significantly. So the what else are we doing? Uh, the... CAR T-cell story is a very big story in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and acute lymphocytic leukemia. There is, there are, there is a CD30 CAR T-cell strategy being developed uh, just this last month. Uh, Dr. Kat Bollard and associates uh, uh, have reported on tumor-specific T-cells that are engineered to overcome tumor immune evasion different than the PD-1, PDL stories and they induce clinical responses. And so in the future, cellular therapy is going to become uh, uh, very important uh, uh, along the way. My last question is, how does research contribute to your treatments? I think that it, it, it's very hard for us to all understand that when we're doing something in the line of research, if it's a clinical trial, it's simple. If we ask you to enter into a study where we store your peripheral blood away with your DNA, your RNA, your cells, your serum, and ask you to fill out a booklet uh, about different questions about what your work was, what your lifestyle is, what your exercise patterns are, what your diet patterns are, we know that we're not going to be able to report back to you and give you uh, this information uh, 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 very quickly and may not you may not ever know that that it contributed 
but we're starting to find that efforts such as we've done in our in a SPORE grant with the Molecular Epidemiology Research Project and then the a, a, a LEO Consortium Project that we're really getting tremendous participation. And our hope is is that with ability to potentially use the tissue to do other studies, to do other very intense genomic studies, uh, we're going to be able to change this disease even further and potentially really alter even our initial approach very, very dramatically. One example of something that was reported back around 2012 in conjunction with uh, big uh, national and international collaborations uh, uh, and with big controls was a report of a meta-analysis of, of uh, looking at risk factors in genes that, that potentially identify who is at risk to develop Hodgkin lymphoma. This kind of thing is not available right now for patients, but our hope is, is that we begin to find other approaches uh, to identify uh, who is at risk, and secondly, what we can do to actually approach the disease because of the genomics uh, and, and, and the genes that are driving the process. And so these are my thoughts. Thank you, Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Harriman. That was wonderful and really very informative and also giving people um, information about some of the new treatments and um, and how important clinical research is. And so I know there will be questions for you during the, during the, during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Allison Rosenthal. Um, and Dr. Rosenthal is a hematology consultant at Mayo Clinic, Arizona. And Dr. Rosenthal is going to address managing complications and treatment side effects, your comfort level with adherence or taking your medications on schedule, and the benefits of, of communicating with your healthcare team. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rosenthal. Thank you, Dr. Messner. So uh, you've all now heard a lot about the drugs that are available um, if you need one treatment or if you need additional treatment for Hodgkin lymphoma. So I'm going to take a minute to go through what some of those common side effects are that are associated in some of the strategies we have to get you through it without feeling too bad. Um, so with the standard of care for the majority of patients that are young and otherwise healthy getting treatment for Hodgkin lymphoma being ABVD, there are some unique side effects that come with a few of the drugs in that cocktail. Um, and if you've already had treatment, then you're aware. Uh, one of those things, adriamycin, the A in that uh, cocktail of drugs, is actually red. Um, and it's one of the only colored chemotherapies we have. And so that can be disconcerting to some people. And I warn people ahead of time that um, if some of your body fluids, including your urine, turn colors for a couple days, that's pretty expected. And it's just the, uh, the drug leaving the system. But we also know that that's uh, the medicine in this group of drugs that is going to cause nausea, if any of them are. And so I personally take a very proactive approach to treating nausea in my patients because who wants to come back for treatment two weeks later if you're nauseous already? Um, we have a lot of good anti-nausea medications, but that's exactly what they are, anti-nausea medications. So they're taken best on a preventative basis. Um, and so in this day and age, we have so many options to manage that that it's unusual for people to be at home throwing up a lot. And if, and if that's the case, then, then we're doing something wrong and need to make some adjustments. I realize that is something that gives people a lot of anxiety about needing to get chemotherapy is if they're going to be sick. 
Um, the second drug in that category is uh, bleomycin, and that one can have some impact on your lung function. So most people get baseline lung function tests prior, um, and it's important that if you're smoking at the time of diagnosis, and that includes smoking anything whatsoever, um, it's time to stop um, and avoid doing so throughout the duration of treatment. Um, the third medicine in that group, the V and ABVD, is vinblastine, and that medicine is guaranteed pretty much to constipate the majority of people. And so another thing to be proactive about in the midst of treatment is making sure that you have regular bowel movements, and again, easy ways to do that with over-the-counter medications such as stool softeners or laxatives. I have a lot of patients who use something called Smooth Move Tea, which apparently is very popular, um, and take magnesium um, if they don't like taking prescription medications as well. Um, the decarbazine itself doesn't have a lot of uh, specific side effects, though if one of these drugs is going to irritate your veins, if you're getting this through a regular vein, it might be that one. Um, and so the majority of patients who get this chemotherapy for more than a couple months do end up needing a port. Um, that's for your convenience and then also to make sure that there isn't any irritation or damage to the tissues where the chemotherapy is being infused. Um, I skipped something pretty important as far as the adriamycin goes. It can have an impact in the long term on your heart function, the strength of the squeeze. In general, if you have a pretty healthy, strong heart, as most young adults do, um, then this isn't a problem, and we just keep a very close eye for any signs or symptoms that might indicate that we should uh, minimize that medicine. One of the things that comes up with this regimen in most of my young patients is questions about fertility. So pretty inconvenient time to get lymphoma or any other kind of cancer is in your teens, 20s, or 30s. A lot of patients are in the midst of planning families or starting families at that time. The good news is, is that ABVD, the younger you are, has a pretty minimal risk of causing infertility. It's not zero, um, so it's important to talk about with your physicians and make sure if there's time to take precautions, if it's important to you, um, that can be done. The downside to that, unfortunately, is many insurance plans won't cover the cost of fertility preservation, but some will, so it's worth asking about if it's something you're concerned about. Um, there was also a discussion about this uh, combination of including brentuximab uh, and dropping the bleomycin um, in the frontline setting. So if that's the case, there's some other things we worry about a little bit there. One being neuropathy. Brentuximab can commonly cause burning, numbness, and tingling in your fingers, toes, and feet. Generally, that's dose-dependent, meaning the more you get, the more likely that is to happen. Unlike vinblastine, which is an ABVD, which can cause the same thing, but it can be permanent, the neuropathy that comes with brentuximab tends to be reversible. Again, that's not a 100% guaranteed thing, but for the most part, it gets better, if not goes away at the end of treatment. So um, rest assured, if you're experiencing that with brentuximab, it is likely to get better when you stop the medication. The other thing is, um, with any kind of chemotherapy, we worry about risk of something called neutropenic fever. We understand that because chemotherapy kills fast-growing cells, you've got some normal fast-growing cells in the system too, and that includes your blood. So as you are living, your bone marrow makes new blood all the time, and as your cells age out, it makes some more. And so your bone marrow takes a, a little bit of a hit from chemotherapy, and your blood counts will dip for a bit and then come back up. Because chemotherapy is given every two weeks in the beginning for Hodgkin lymphoma, your white blood cells often stay pretty low, and that opens the door for risk of infection. 
And so fevers are very important to recognize and report to your doctor. Um, but with the combination of the brentuximab in that regimen, that risk goes up of having what's called neutropenic fever or a fever when your white cells are low. And so the majority of patients getting that regimen should also be getting a shot to make sure that it boosts their white cells, minimizes the risk of, of fever, and minimizes the time those white cells are low. That's different than with ABVD where we typically do not give the shot, those, those some people will opt to. Um, so brentuximab is a pretty tolerable regimen. We just have to keep an eye out for those uh, common side effects that can happen and are unique to, to that drug. Um, I just wanted to take a second in case there are some people who aren't young um, at diagnosis of their Hodgkin's. We do different treatments sometimes in older or elderly patients with Hodgkin's. Pretty tough to get ABVD every two weeks, and the tolerance of bleomycin in older adults is, is sometimes poor. Um, and so either we will omit that medication completely, or there's an option to give a combination of drugs called CHOP, which is something we use in other types of lymphoma, or other combinations have also been used, like brentuximab with bendamustine um, or, or some other um, kind of more gentle therapies. Many of these are still pretty effective in treating Hodgkin lymphoma, and so is an individualized decision depending on what other medical issues you have, how healthy you are, the stage of your Hodgkin's, and what your doctor is comfortable with. But there can be some unique side effects that come uh, with those regimens, too, so important to make sure that you have a good understanding of what you're getting into. Um, another thing that I think is relevant and a lot of people complain about is fatigue. Um, and so getting through six months or four or six months of chemotherapy can be pretty challenging from an energy perspective, particularly if you already have young kids at home. And so there's been some research done in what's called cancer-related fatigue or even treatment-related fatigue, and there are some things that you can uh, take an active stance on that may help. Believe it or not, exercise is one of those things. Um, and so a moderate amount of exercise might actually improve your stamina and your fatigue some, but to do so when your body tells you that it is is willing to do it. Um, some other actions like mind-body wellness type things, mindfulness exercises, yoga, acupuncture, any of those things are unlikely to hurt and, and may potentially help with your fatigue. Um, and then important to make sure your doctor knows if you're having difficulty sleeping. Because if you can't sleep the whole week you get chemotherapy, you're going to feel pretty tired the second week too. And so there are some things we can do to help you with sleep hygiene and making sure you're getting adequate rest. Um, the last drug common, uh, the last drug types I want to talk about are those PD-1 or checkpoint inhibitor drugs you heard a little bit about. So nivolumab and pembrolizumab are the two that are approved in the U.S. in this setting. And because they work by turning the immune system back on or activating the immune system, the side effects are different than they are with chemotherapy and instead tend to center around um, activating the immune system a little bit too well. And so the side effects are mostly what I call the itises, and you can get inflammation of pretty much any organ system um, that you have. Thankfully, these are pretty uncommon side effects of these medications, and they tend to be tolerable for patients in the long term if they're working, meaning people can be on these for a couple years if they're doing well. Um, but some of the things that can commonly happen are rash or changes to the skin. There can be inflammation in the lungs or colon. We call that pneumonitis or colitis. There are some kind of less common things that can happen in the endocrine system, including your pituitary gland makes a lot of hormones and it can be affected. Your thyroid can be affected, either high or low thyroid. 
and even have seen a few cases of um, new onset diabetes in some patients getting these drugs. These are all things that the people prescribing them are aware of, um, and different laboratory studies can be done to monitor these things, such as checking your blood sugar or your thyroid function, but important to also let your doctors know if you're experiencing any weird side effects or feel funny when you're getting these drugs because it may be easier to deal with these side effects early rather than later. They're also pretty addressable. The majority of them are addressable with stopping the medication uh, temporarily or permanently, depending on the severity, and treatment with steroids, though some of these side effects will be permanent. Um, and again, an individualized discussion with your doctor will help figure out what the appropriate thing to do is if you're experiencing any of the things I mentioned. Um, the second topic I had here was comfort level with adherence. For Hodgkin lymphoma, the majority of drugs that people um, are prescribed are IV, and so we don't have to worry so much about compliance with taking oral medications at home, which can be a challenge, but these drugs are on a schedule for a reason, meaning if you are being told there's a treatment that's every two weeks or every three weeks, that's because we know that it's effective at that interval. So we do our very best to keep people on schedule, particularly when we're trying to cure you of your lymphoma. So it's important that you make it to all your appointments, and if there are any dose delays or uh, visits missed, they're pretty, um, they're minimized best we can. Um, the final part here of communicating with your healthcare team, there are some pretty substantial benefits there. One is if, I, if you don't tell me you don't feel good or don't tell my nurse you don't feel good, I don't know you don't feel good, and there's probably something I can do to help you feel better. So it's okay to speak up. I remind all of my patients in the beginning, particularly my young male patients, uh, that this isn't no pain, no gain. You don't get bonus points if you, if you don't complain. You don't get bonus points if you don't take your anti-nausea medicines. You got to do it so we can get you from the beginning to the end. So it's okay to let us know if you don't feel good. It's okay to let us know if you're scared or you feel depressed. We can, we can work with people um, as long as that there's open communication there. I personally work in a multidisciplinary team to take care of my patients. So when, when new patients come with Hodgkin's, they meet me, they meet my nurse, they meet my nurse practitioner, they meet our social worker uh, who primarily deals with hematologic malignancy patients. And so there are a lot of resources available to you, but you might not know exactly what they are unless you speak up. So I would encourage you to do so. And I think that's probably the majority of time I was given. So Dr. Messner, I'll hand it back to you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Rosenthal. That was really very informative and, and really so helpful to everybody. I think it's always uh, daunting um, to actually think about side effects and manage them and work with the healthcare team so that one can maintain the quality of one's life. And so thank you for that very important section. And I'm just going to say a few words about the services from Cancer Care, and then we're going to take questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Some of you are already submitting questions, so we're going to have... Um, uh, Glenda will tell everybody how to ask questions in just a minute. So Cancer Care offers free um, psychosocial services and programs. They're offered by trained oncology social workers. And what does that actually mean? It means that you can call our 800 number and speak to one of our social workers and just talk to them about your concerns or questions um, about um, your Hodgkin lymphoma, about any of the concerns that you may have as a person living with Hodgkin lymphoma, as a family member, friend, colleague, partner, all are welcome to call us. Anyone who is uh, a co-worker, all are welcome to call us for, um, for help. We also offer individual uh, counseling on the telephone, and we also offer um, really over about 120 online support groups, both for caregivers for, and different types of caregivers and partners, 
And um, so we have a lot of different programs and telephone support groups. So both our U.S. participants and international participants, many people really find the online group forum very helpful. They're facilitated by a professionally trained oncology social worker, but they are 24 hours a day, so you can post whenever you happen to be up. Often people are up in the middle of the night and can post or different time zones, and the social worker or everyone can post back, and it's carefully facilitated, and they're password protected, so very safe indeed um, in terms of confidentiality. Um, so those are some services. We also do offer financial assistance. We have a copay foundation as well. So we kind of think of us as a bit of a something for everyone so that it may be that you're calling for a specific service and then you may learn about the other services that might be of use to you as well. So the most pressing issue might be the one that you'd call us about and then you might then find that there are other things we can help with as well. Um, and we also just want to say we do have a children's program as well. Children, of course, are impacted by cancer. Um, they're often impacted by cancer in their families, and often people don't know the language to talk with them about their, um, about what they're experiencing, and, and often parents or uncles and aunts and family members don't know what to say with them either, so we do have a whole program to help with that as well. So that's just a quick snapshot of what we offer, and um, I hope you'll, if you feel these might be of services to you, these might be of use to you, take advantage of them, absolutely. Now, we have time for questions. I'm going to ask um, Glenda to explain to you how to cure for questions. I'm going to take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get your question at the end of the call, I'll explain to you how to get your questions further answered that we didn't get to. Okay, uh, but Glenda, let's see what we can do here. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to ask a question at this time, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star then one. So we have some questions for our online participants, so I'll start with them and then um, Linda will keep me posted if there's any telephone questions as well. Um, so um, a first question, I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Strauss if you would start with this question. Um, so the question is, today, are there any indicators for relapse? Um, I know there are no gene tests, but everything, anything else that might predict if I will relapse? Could you address that question, uh, Dr. Strauss, in a general way, please? Sure. Uh, I touched on this on my introductory remarks on the importance of PET scanning. So PET scanning is very useful for initial staging, but also for assessing response. So if you have an if you have a positive PET scan before treatment and a negative PET scan during treatment or at the end of treatment, the latter being more standard, the chances of a relapse are very low, 10% or less. Positive PET scan is actually more problematic because there are false positives. That is, there are people who have some degree of residual PET positivity but do not turn out to have active disease. So that's a little bit more of a problem. So the most powerful prognosticator that we have now is a negative PET scan really at the end of treatment. There are other biomarkers that are somewhat predictive, but I think for clinical practice, we really rely on the PET scan. With a negative PET scan at the end of treatment, the chances of relapse are 10% or less, probably less than 10%. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. hope that helps. And please, also, all of you, when you ask your questions here, of course, take the information back to treating healthcare team 
check with them as well, but hopefully this will give you some information that's invaluable. And I think we have a telephone question from Glenda, yes? Yes, and our question comes from the line of Ann B. Your line is now open. Hello. Um, could you say something, please, about the treatment of nodular lymphocyte-predominant Hodgkin's lymphoma? Thank you. Can I take that one? Yes, please, yes. Uh, that is controversial, but the bottom line is uh, that that particular variant of Hodgkin lymphoma, which is 5% or less of the total number of patients, is excellent. It is different biologically than the 95% of classical, what we call classical Hodgkin lymphoma, and is probably more related to low-grade B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma biologically. So there, opinions have differed as to how to treat this, and there have been papers touting this and that, and they all say they had their given treatment and they had an excellent result. But the bottom line and the thing in common is the patients did great. So the question, the question is, do they do great because of the treatment or do they, or just do they do great anyway? And we have actually looked at our results and I would say that in my practice, I have to have a very good reason to treat this disease because it is not associated with a decreased survival and it's unclear whether treating immediately is going to have any benefit. And in fact, we found that sometimes the problems were more from treatment than from the disease. Sometimes this can transform, maybe 1% per year, something like that, of cases will transform to a higher grade or more aggressive lymphoma, usually a non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And if that occurs, it's a real, it's, it is a definite indication for treatment, which can be effective. It's not clear, though, that treating all patients will reduce the likelihood of this. So, you know, I think for for localized disease, which is a common presentation, radiation therapy has been used, but, you know, it's unclear to me, which may not be a majority opinion, whether this has really any impact on on outcomes such as survival or even relapse since the relapses are not going to occur in the area that was radiated. And for treatment for patients who have more than localized disease, there have been many different approaches, all of which have given a good result. But to me, for that group of patients with more than just localized disease, the question is more when and if than what. Now, this is you know something I think that many people kind of share this approach to some extent, but uh, we have particularly uh, sort of favored, and we have data that we presented to the American Society of Hematology, and we have a manuscript in progress really talking about uh, observation and expectant following as compared to initial treatment in many cases of this. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and we have another question from the online participants. Um, and I'm going to give um the first one to Dr. Um, Haberman. Um, so um, what long-term effects should I be worried about if I received only ABVD and no radiation? So the long-term effects um, with, without radiation are, are less. 
Uh, we reduce the risk of lung cancer significantly. We reduce the risk of coronary artery disease. There's still a risk of a cardiomyopathy, uh, as, as Dr. Rosenthal alluded to. If you get through therapy and you really and, and you don't have lung complications, the the thing that has really changed, especially with the RAFL trial, which just came out recently is to reduce the amount of bleomycin. So if you have advanced stage disease, uh, six cycles of ABVD uh, without the bleomycin in the last four cycles uh, has a similar outcome. And so the two major toxicities are cardiomyopathy and lung disease, and we've gotten better at that by reducing things to six cycles and re with, the with the anthracyclines or adriamycin, and we have... Uh, reducing the bleomycin has significantly improved things. The other secondary malignancies are less, again, without uh, radiation therapy. And perhaps Dr. Strauss would have some other comments from their institutional experience in, in uh, trials. Well, in my, I think that the major late effects uh, seem to be related mostly that are clinically important and potentially even can be, you know, very serious and even sometimes cause death are really related to radiation therapy. And I think that with the uh, modern approach to limit its use and to use it when necessary, perhaps in the safest way possible, I think this will have an, a major impact on the problem that we've had with late complications of treatment. Excellent. And Dr. Rosenthal, do you wish to add anything in terms of the um, disease long-term effect management of them? I think that pretty covers it. It pretty much covers okay. it. Thanks. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, and now these are related questions. Actually, I. I wonder if they're, let's be sure they're, well, forgive me if they seem, they're, they're different postings. I just want to see if these are. Um, so I, I, we may have covered this, but I'm going to ask it again anyway, because here it is again. Um, what is your, so I'm going to ask um, uh, Dr. Rosenthal if you would address this. What is your standard treatment for first relapse after ABVD chemo? What trials are most promising? Well, um, for, so for first relapse, that implies that at some point you got into remission, meaning it, it went away completely. So there are some options there, and I guess it would depend on candidacy for an autologous stem cell transplant. So for the small number of patients with Hodgkin lymphoma that um, either have a recurrence or don't respond to their first-line treatment, there's a second chance at curing a proportion of them with an autologous stem cell transplant where we use your own uh, stem cells, so probably shouldn't be called a transplant because you're not getting anything from anybody else, but it basically involves getting a higher dose of chemotherapy than we would typically be able to give you outside the hospital. Um, so in order to move in that direction, we typically typically will give people a different kind of chemotherapy as much as, as needed to get them into remission. So generally, that's not nearly as much chemo as you got in the beginning. It's a short amount. Um, and then to proceed with transplant. Now, some people will use brentuximab uh, in that second treatment, and some people use um, – there's a 
variety of chemotherapies. Ice is a combination that we use pretty frequently um, there. It depends on other organ function and, and patient preference. Um, but if not eligible for an autologous stem cell transplant, then I guess to move on to things like brintuximab by itself or nivolumab or pembrolizumab or a clinical trial of some kind. It's always okay to participate in a clinical trial that's asking a question as to whether or not we can improve upon something that we are doing. But the ultimate goal, for the most part, would be to get someone to that autologous stem cell transplant if they were young and otherwise healthy enough. Excellent. Okay. Thank you. Um, any other comments on that? Anyone else want to add to that? Or? Okay. Excellent. Um, so now we have a question in front of our online participants. Um, um, I'm going to ask if Dr. Haberman, if you would start with this one. Um, what can I do to prevent infections after treatment? Are there vaccinations that I shouldn't get? So that's a very good question. I think it's it's essential to be uh, updated on your on your immunizations um, in older data, and I'm not sure that there's really been. This has been updated in certain ways, but there's an impaired cell-mediated immunity that used to persist for five, up to five years in Hodgkin lymphoma, which is different than non-Hodgkin lymphoma. I think what's really changed the landscape and what we've all been waiting for is a zoster vaccine or a shingles vaccine uh, that uh, can be used in patients who've received chemotherapy or who've had lymphoma. And so Shingrix has come out. Um, it's uh, uh, given in two doses, and um, I think it, it, I've been really uh, trying to encourage uh, people to patients to to get that updated. The NCCN guidelines um, prior to this, uh, the members of the committee were not comfortable in using the live vaccines, uh, uh, but the uh, uh, so this uh, I think is really important. Uh, I think as far as when you approach your physician, I think to go out to the NCCN guideline uh, 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 area under immunizations, it's been recently updated again. Uh, I think it's it's fairly done, and that can really uh, help significantly. If you're doing international travel to certain areas of the world, uh, you really need to see someone that can get access to websites and understand what immunizations you may need, and then they look into the whole issue of uh, if they are live vaccines, do you do it or not? Excellent. Um, we have a few more online questions before we um, conclude the program today. We have uh, an online question. Um, I'm going to give this question for um, for Dr. Strauss. Um, what are symptoms of Hodgkin lymphoma relapse? Does relapse happen quickly, or is it something that comes slowly? Is it easily noticeable? Uh, very good question. Uh, it seems that the majority of relapses occur within the first two to three years after completing treatment. Uh, there are late relapses, but they are much less common. So we follow patients, and opinions differ a little bit, usually for three to five years, and then after that, uh, really probably discharged uh, to uh, follow up with uh, community physicians. Although patients who've had uh, radiation therapy uh, should be followed longer for the possibility of late effects of radiation therapy, uh, which really pick up after 10 years. So 
patients who've received radiation therapy really need longer follow-up. And with periodic screening, with uh, stress testing, uh, stress echocardiogram, uh, carotid Doppler study, uh, ultrasound studies to look for narrowing of the carotid arteries if they've received neck radiation, monitoring of uh, thyroid function in case they develop hypothyroidism. Um, uh, the second part of that was how to what how does it uh, occur? The most common thing would be that you'd notice an enlarged lymph node that wasn't there before. Sometimes you can have development of B symptoms, fevers, night sweats, weight loss, and more rarely things that are not B symptoms but associated like generalized severe itching or alcohol-induced pain where you will develop pain on drinking an alcoholic beverage in areas that are involved. But most commonly, the thing that will be noticed is an enlarged lymph node that wasn't there before. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, another question that came in from one of our online participants um, uh, for... Um, so, Dr. Rosenthal, am I at greater risk of secondary cancers because I have Hodgkin because I've had Hodgkin's lymphoma? Um, it's tough to answer that question. So, there's a lot of literature that supports saying yes to that. However, that is probably related to what we've been discussing in that there are some long-term effects of radiation therapy. There is probably a slightly increased risk of a second cancer even without radiation therapy, but it's pretty small, um, and there isn't, like, one in particular. I can't say, well, you're at increased risk of colon cancer or increased risk of lung cancer or anything like that from chemotherapy alone or from simply having Hodgkin's alone, um, but there's a well-known association between certain types of cancer uh, depending on where you received radiation therapy and the amount you received. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and so the last question for Dr. Haberman. Um, so just a comment, and actually others may want to add to it as well, um, a, a question really about lymphoma and its survivorship in terms of um, survivorship versus other cancers, if you could speak to that, um, Dr. Haberman. I think that that's a great question and a very complicated one, and and it depends again on how you've been treated and what you've received. So if you received, if you had stage one two disease, as Dr. Strauss outlined, limited cycles of ABVD, those survivorship issues and your complications of survival—that's the term I like to use—are really are really quite low. Uh, secondly, ABVD times six cycles overall. Uh, now, especially if you're getting only uh, t two of the cycles with bleomycin, the chances of really having a, a remarkably good quality of life are good. If you relapse and you go through auto stem cell transplant, then we know that your, that, that your quality of life will not be as good as the normal population for a, for a, a, a segment of patients they don't really have a good number uh, to provide for that. Uh, if you go through multiple relapses, then that does impact on your, your number one, your overall survivorship, but, but your quality of life. But what's really fascinating to me is I have a number of patients who have relapsed post-transplant that I've managed for between 12 and 20 years, 
and they've gone through different treatments after these relapses uh, because of the different clinical trials that have come along. And now there's nivolumab, which patients are responding to and able to respond to with retreatment uh, that I think is really kind of changing this landscape. And so Hodgkin lymphoma patients have a long-term survivor rate, as, as Dr. Strauss alluded to, up front and even in the relapse setting. Uh, the drugs that we're using are, are not the same drugs as, as other solid tumors, uh, uh, and the quality of life uh, because of that, uh, especially different, some, and I won't go through the different tumors, but uh, can be much better. And so the expectation at the beginning when I talk to patients, I try to describe to them, you know, this is going to be different than lung cancer or than the colon cancer that your, you know, your, your spouse had and so forth. Thank you. Thank you, Will. This is a... Um Thank you for that, um, and that's a kind of wonderful way to uh, conclude the program today. So you have a sense of really, um, really how important all of the, um, the the research that's gone into improving the care of people with um, with Hodgkin's lymphoma to this extent. And I, I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been extraordinary. I want to thank our participants who've asked such great questions, both on the telephone online and also all of you who've been listening as well. Um, and I do want to remind you all that. Um, that uh, there are um, ways to get your questions answered if you didn't get your question answered because there are still more questions in queue. So um, obviously the, one of the best resources is your own healthcare team. So we don't want to ever sidetrack them. And also, even though you had questions answered today, please take that information back to your team and go over, them, go over the questions with them as well. Um, hopefully you'll have gained some information from today's program, and hopefully that will help you to feel more confident in asking your questions, but even asking your questions in a more informed way. Also, many of you like to go to other places for information. So I always do, for lymphoma calls, I certainly recommend the Lymphoma Research Foundation because they have a wonderful call center there. And, they're, um, and they, they, um, their telephone number is in our resources. You'll be getting it. When you get your evaluation, you'll be getting all of the, um, the, the telephone numbers and the um, websites for them. But I will give you this one because I just want you to have it. Um, it's lymphoma.org is their website. And they have lots of informational materials there. And also um, their um, number is 800-500-9976. And because we have a bit of a global call, of course, websites are always very precious to everybody on the call. Um, also, uh, for other questions, too, I also recommend the National Cancer Institute often because it's a great resource. They, their website is www.cancer.gov. And they happen to have a live chat feature where you can actually Go to their website homepage, go to the live chat feature, post your question, and their information specialist will research all of their information and get back to you. So that could be a very nice resource as well. Um, and so we could go on all afternoon with all the resources. Perhaps most importantly, I don't want anyone to leave this call feeling that you are alone. You are not alone. There are, there are really literally hundreds of resources at your disposal, including, of course, your healthcare team, but there are many, many organizations out there that can help you, and I think you're all looking for consistency in your, with the answers to your questions. That's really important, and also that these are very credible sites that you go to. Also, if any of you particularly would like to get some support or counseling or talk to a social worker um, here at Cancer Care, you can certainly call our staff here at Cancer Care um, at... Um, 
uh, 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancer.org. Um, and um, we have a lot of programs coming up that might be of interest to you. So you'll be getting, with you, when you get your evaluation form, you'll be getting all of this other information, both resources and also um, we also very much like to hear your feedback about the program. It helps us to plan future programs. We are planning lots of programs in 2018, so your feedback is very helpful to us in terms of topics you'd like us to address more um, and things you'd like us to do. So we definitely would like to hear from you. Again, I want to thank you for your participation today and wish you all a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.